Good morning. I realize uh, the way that we're having to do service today is probably a bit inconvenient for you and uh, for many others. I do apologize for that. Um, like many other churches, we're having to adjust the way we do things in order to better accommodate uh, the safety and security of everyone, of our families, children, the elderly, uh, anyone and everyone that may be associated with what we do. I do want to extend uh, a warm welcome to both of the shelters, to uh, the Friendship Home, and to the John Thompson Center as well, as uh, along with everyone else who may be watching and who may be sharing in this video message today. Before we get into our scripture, which will be Isaiah 64 verse 1, at least that's where we will begin, I do want to open with a word of prayer. I want to remember all of the prayer requests that you have on your heart today. And I also want to remember all of the people who are working so diligently to try to help us. I pray that God will give them wisdom. I pray that he will bless the medication that's being given. And I pray that he will move upon hearts and lives to ease the fear and ease the anxiety that has taken over our society today. So bow with me. Let's open in a word of prayer and then we will get into God's word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege of opening your word today. I thank you for each one that is watching today. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would look at the request of their heart, the needs of their life. I pray that you would help them. I pray that you would strengthen them and encourage them. And Heavenly Father, we know that you are in control of everything. Uh, the world may seem to be in chaos right now, but that is all regarding our fear, not regarding your fearlessness. And Heavenly Father, I ask that you would give us peace and comfort. I pray that you would touch the hearts of our leaders. I pray that you would give wisdom to the medical field. I pray, Heavenly Father, you would protect the law enforcement and all of the officials, all of the prison officials, the corrections officers, everyone involved in taking care of our safety and security. Now, Heavenly Father, as we open your word, bless it to nourish our heart, and may our lives be dedicated to serving you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 1 this morning. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens, that thou wouldst come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. Isaiah was calling out to God. Isaiah was asking God to open the heavens. Not only that, he was asking God to come down and to dwell among his people. He was asking God to come visit them. He was asking God to make himself known. And he was asking that God would do so in such a way that it would be so obvious that even the mountains 
would come down and would flow down at his presence. My, what a wonderful thought. What an awesome thought to know that the presence of God would be so real in the lives of people that even the mountains would flow down at his presence. How real is God in your life today? Not only how real is he, but how real is his presence? Does everything in your life, do the biggest mountains of your life flow down at his presence? Have you ever asked God to open heaven and come down? I have a feeling today with the condition that our world is in and with the circumstances that are going on around us, there are a lot of people that are crying out to God. But is God actually listening? Is God actually coming into their lives? Is His presence real? There are some things that I want to bring out of Isaiah chapter 64. Some things that will some things that will touch hearts and lives. Some things that will possibly change the way you look at yourself and the way that you look at God and how God responds to your cries and pleas. I want you to notice with me three things this morning. I want you to realize first that because of the recent medical and financial and social problems, the world seems to have, well, we've turned ourselves upside down. God hasn't turned us upside down, but we've turned ourselves upside down. We are in a spot and in a place where we're in a panic mode. We are in a full-blown panic mode. I can't think of the number of people that I have been in contact with whose faces have reeked with fear. They, they have been afraid to look at other people. They have been afraid to be within contact of other people. And I realize we have, we have recommendations for six foot limits and, and I realize that the, ten, the gatherings of ten people or less. And I understand all of that and I agree with it. But what about the fear? Where's our confidence that God has got this under control? Where is our confidence that God is working and moving and, and touching hearts and lives today? We're looking for that moment when science tells us that a corner has been turned and that everything is going to be okay that it's going to get better. But you know what? God's already said things are going to be better. God has already promised us from His Word that for those people who know Him through Jesus Christ, for those who have Jesus Christ in their heart and in their life, there's nothing to fear. Nothing. The victory has already been given. What an amazing 
An amazing and wonderful thought and feeling that is to know that through Jesus Christ there is nothing the coronavirus can do. There is nothing the stock market can do. There is nothing all of the social anxiety and the fear, none of that can do to harm my standing with God and to harm my promise of eternity. Now that's awesome. But yet, we do wonder why, why God's not visiting us. Whenever we have any tragedy, it, it doesn't really matter what it is, whenever we have any tragedy, we wonder. Someone is always asking the question, where is God? Where is God during this? And that's a, that's a justifiable question. So where is God? Well, I'll tell you, God is on His throne. God is still in control of everything. God hasn't lost control of nothing. Nothing caught God by surprise. The coronavirus did not catch God by surprise. Then why didn't He stop it? He had His reasons. He could have, but God had His reasons not to stop that virus. God, I believe, is ramping up His work to get our attention. God wants us to give our undivided attention back to Him. We have spent literally decades pushing God aside. And I believe God has allowed things over the last few decades, including the circumstances we're faced with today, to be a warning to you and I. And I think we need to take this warning seriously. I really think we need to pay a great deal of attention to what's going on, and we need to pay a great deal of attention to God's Word. So I said there were a few things. Actually, there are three things from Isaiah 64 that I want to point out. First of all, I want us to realize, before we get into that, that God's not visiting us quite possibly because we as a nation and as a people are in rebellion. Now, I'm not suggesting that God is judging America. Could be possible, but I'm not going to stand here and prophesy that. I will remind you again, for decades we've been ignoring God. We have gone out of our way to legalize sin. We've gone out of our way to justify our lust and our greed. We have excused ourselves. We have made everything possible under the sun to do what we want to do the way we want to do it and tell God to just deal with it. Now, we may not have been that bold in the way we done it, but that's exactly what we've done with God. We have lived a life of rebellion in front of Him. And that even applies to the church. The church has even become rebellious to God. We want to turn the church into anything and everything except what God wants it to be. 
We want it to be a social gathering place. We want it to be a place of entertainment. We want it to be anything and everything except a place of good, godly, spirit-filled worship. Where has that gone? And I realize every Christian listening to this and watching it is going to say, oh, well, that doesn't include my church. That should be the first indication that you better be checking up on yourself and on your church because you very well may be justifying the very things that are causing you to live in rebellion to God. Think about that. Think about how it applies to you personally. Don't worry about your neighbor. Don't worry about the church down the road. Don't worry about the folks uh, that, that are next door. Think about you. Do you live in rebellion to God? God's still on His throne. God hasn't gone anywhere. If our relationship with God has gotten any broader, it is because we moved. Not God. I want to remind you of a little story. This comes from God's Word. After David's affair with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, her husband, and David's attempt to cover all of this up, David realized something. He realized very quickly that his problem didn't lie with Uriah. His problem didn't lie with the, with the priest. His problem didn't, didn't lie with Bathsheba. While he, his sin affected all of those people and even the nation of Israel, his problem was with God. In Psalm 51.4, he said, Against thee only have I sinned. Against thee only. He said to God. God is holy and righteous and perfect and sinless. When we sin, we sin against God. That doesn't mean our consequences or our effects of that sin doesn't affect other people. It most certainly does. But our sin is against God. So what are we going to do about it? Are we going to keep justifying it and covering it up? Well, I would not have done it if this hadn't have happened. I would not have done it if this person had not have said this. I would not have done it if this person had not have done that. I would not have done it if my parents hadn't have done this. I would not have done it if my pastor hadn't have said that. I would not have done it if you fill in the blank. We keep justifying our sin to ourselves. And we fail God. That justification is rebellion. That justification is rebellion. It is rebellion against God. Because we are refusing to acknowledge our failures. Think about that. 
Think about how broadly that reaches into our lives. Think about how deeply it reaches into our lives. James chapter 4 verse 17 To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. If we know right from wrong and we choose wrong, it is sin. If we know right and wrong and we choose wrong, it is sin. That alone, that one verse alone should put us on our knees before God crying out for repentance. It really should. We worry about and talk about revival and we talk about all of the emotions that go with revival and we talk about everything that goes and all of the fellowship and all of the fun and, and everything that goes along with it. But in the end, when it's all said and done and when the lights are turned out for the last time on the last meeting, how much of revival really sticks in the heart? How much of it removes rebellion from the people? Real revival begins in the heart of the individual. It stays in the heart of the individual and it affects the heart of the individual. We're not going to have sweeping revival across America or across the world until we have sweeping revival in the hearts of the individual. We're not going to see folks saved and born again until those who are saved and born again can move out of their rebellion and start living a life that is godly and justified. One that reaches God. Why doesn't God visit us? Because of our rebellion. Because of the sins of omission, the sins of commission, the sins of disposition, the sins of doubtful things. Not just our mistakes, our blunders, our imperfections, but our deeds. Our deeds. We have a sinful nature, and that isn't a license to do anything. Our sinful nature can be dealt with at the cross. Our sinful deeds are deeds that we must deal with daily. And they too must be taken to the cross. But it must go daily because our sinful deeds are forever in front of us. They're forever before us. They are forever working in our heart and in our lives and in our minds trying to shape the way that we behave and the way that we move and the way that we work. The way that we operate. The way that we justify ourselves. Are we really going to let sin control our deeds so that it removes our testimony from people, from others? That's some really sobering words of thought. We, we, we take our fear and we put it in front of us about this virus and about the stock markets and about all of the other social things that are coming of all of this. We're so afraid that we're shaking in our shoes, but we're not afraid of God. We're not afraid of God. We're living in rebellion. If we feared God, 
half as much as we feared these other things, we would have a petition to call upon him and he would visit us. And when God would visit us in a time of trouble over this virus, things would change in people's lives. Want to see the conditions change around us as we get through this? Change people's lives. See people's lives change through Jesus Christ. See God visiting them. How's that going to happen for us to remove ourselves from rebellion and return to revival? Also, God's not visiting us because we're unclean. Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteousness are as filthy rags. That goes a, that that is more profound than what many of you probably realize. Because we are a self-righteous people. We sure are. We are a self-righteous people. We have so much self-righteousness that we often behave like we're too God, too good for God. We don't need God. We don't need God until something like this happens. And then we want to know where he's at. We're listening to scientists say that they're working 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, trying to find that one breakthrough. And we're looking for God and we're expecting him to show up. But in our self-righteousness, we spend all of our time pushing him aside. And we don't need God. Do we really not need him now? Is that really how we feel? The Laodiceans were in the same shape. Revelation chapter 3, you can read that letter. The Laodiceans, they had plenty of money. They had plenty of food. They had plenty of clothes. They had the latest and greatest of everything. Doesn't that remind you of a nation called America? But you know what? It wasn't enough. And it's not enough for us today. Matthew chapter 5 verse 20, Jesus tells his disciples, Except your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, what was the righteousness of the Pharisees? Well, do you want to know what a church full of Pharisees is going to look like today? Everybody's going to attend church. Everybody's going to be reading their Bible. Everybody's going to pray in public. Everybody's going to look on the outside like they are separated from the world. And everybody's going to tithe. Everybody's going to try to win folks to what they believe in. But you know what? In the end, everybody's going to be lost. Because it's all going to be based on them. It's all going to be based on what they believe, what they think, what they feel. It doesn't matter how good they are. And that's a picture of how good a religious person can be and still not be good enough. What we, what we look at on the outside, what we see on the outside is one thing. What God sees on the inside is something totally different. What God sees in your life is your heart. Not what you see on, not what you do on the outside. 
He sees it and he knows and he understands if it's coming from a pure heart or if it's coming from a corrupt heart. God doesn't want a testimony of a corrupt heart. God wants a testimony of a pure heart. God wants our hearts pure before him. He wants us righteous. We need a righteousness that's implanted that's imported, that's imputed. We need a righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ today. We need a righteousness that comes from people falling on their knees in an altar and lifting up God and asking Him into their heart and life, asking for forgiveness. We need a heart that God wants to come visit. We need a heart that has a life that God wants to split heaven open for and come down and His presence be so real that we can watch the problems around us as big as mountains. We can watch them flow into His feet. That's what God wants in our lives. That's what He desires. And that's what He's made a way for. What will it take? Well, last and God's not going to visit us because nobody's going to take hold of God. Isaiah 64, 7, There is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. Isaiah says there's nobody that's going to call upon the name of God. There's nobody that's going to stir up himself to take hold of God. Now, people today are stirring up themselves. They're stirring up themselves for politics. They're stirring up themselves for all kinds of personal reasons and gains. They're stirring up themselves because of the stock market. They're stirring up themselves because of the medical crisis. They're stirring up themselves for everything under the sun, but they're not stirring themselves up from God, for God. In another way to say it, nobody is wanting to reach up and take hold of God. No one. Isaiah had it in his day and we have it in our day. We're too tired. We're too tired to pray. We're too tired to study our Bible. We're too tired to worship. Everybody that's around me that I see and talk to on a daily basis is often too tired. Too tired for anything. But yet we live in a day of technology where it is full of labor-saving gadgets. Now let's do a little comparison. Compared to my grandparents who lived a century ago, we have automatic washing machines, microwave ovens, tractors for farming, and high-tech automobiles to take us around anywhere we need to go. The list goes on and on. But yet my grandparents who washed clothes with their hands, who cooked on wood cook stoves, who farmed with animals and horses and mules, who had the meekest of automobiles if they had one at all. Sometimes they were traveling by horse and wagon. They had all of that going on in their lives, but they still had time to pray. They still had time to study their Bible. They still had time to worship. They still had time to go through life. They still had peace regardless of how bad the depression got. They had peace regardless of how bad World War II got. 
They had peace despite any recession that came afterwards. They had peace and they had the ability to hold things together. Community supported community. Neighbors loved and supported neighbors. Why weren't they too tired? Why were they so encouraged? And why do we live in tiresome discouragement daily? Why are we? It's like we're sleepwalking. And the Bible tells us to awake out of that sleep, arise from the dead. Christ shall give you light. That's Ephesians 5.14. Again, we read awake to the righteous. Sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. 1 Corinthians 15.34 God's word tells us to wake up. Wake up and see what's in front of us. Wake up and count the blessings we've got. Wake up and look at the responsibility that we have before us. Isaiah says there's nobody that stirs himself up and reaches for God. Nobody. Yet 2 Timothy 1.6 tells us to stir up the gift of God. The gift of God that's within you. The gift of God that is within me. Stir it up. Take hold of God. Let the rest of the world go. It will take care of itself. Take hold of God. Hosea 10.12 says, Break up your fallow ground. Fallow ground is new ground. New ground. Areas of your life that you've never allowed God to move in. Areas of your life where you've never invited God to come in and take over. Areas of your life where He's wanting to do that next great thing in your life, but yet you won't call upon Him. You won't invite Him in. You won't take hold of Him. Now is the time to let God break up that fallow ground. 1 Peter 1.13 Gird up the loins of your mind. We have our mind pushed in so many directions. No wonder we're tired. We're allowing our mind to focus on things that it shouldn't be focusing on. We're allowing our mind to drift into areas that it shouldn't be drifting into. We're allowing our mind to move on, move in things and influence our lives. Gird up the loins of your mind. Tighten them up. Tighten up the loins of your mind so that they're focused on God. That's what He wants. Why won't He visit us? Because we have the door locked. We have the door locked. In the letter to the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And if you take a good look at that picture of Jesus standing at a door and knocking, you and that painting, and that picture was painted over that piece of scripture, by the way. But if you look at that closely, you will see that that door does not have a door handle on the outside. Jesus specifically tells the one on the inside they're responsible for opening it. He's standing there. He's knocking. 
yet they're responsible for opening. Jesus is standing in the door of our lives today and he is knocking and he is wanting to come in. He can't get present in our lives if we won't let him in. That's what Isaiah was telling Israel. What, when does God break through in our lives, in our world, in our situations? When we open the door and let him in. When we quit closing him out. When we quit justifying ourselves in front of him. When we stop living in rebellion. When we put away the filthy rags of unrighteousness and we take on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's when. That's when. How long is it going to take you? How long is it going to take you to quit living in fear? To quit living in chaos? To quit wringing your hands? Yes, we need to be sincere with what's going on. We need to use the common sense that God's given us. 